Welcome to week two of Unsafe Spaces. We are going through my favorite book of the Bible, the New Testament book of James. Last week, we made it almost all the way through the first verse. I promise you that things will pick up. That was our introduction to the entire book. I introduced James so that you would understand who James is. Because I needed you to understand some crucial elements about James because the rest of this book makes a lot more sense, especially subjects like this morning uh, that I'm going to be talking about, makes a lot more sense when you realize who James was. He was the brother of Jesus. And we talked about that and poked a little bit of fun about what it would have been like to have Jesus for a brother last week. Uh, but what I wanted you most importantly to realize was that he grew up with Jesus and yet did not believe in Jesus. It was only after Jesus had died, resurrected, and came back from the grave to show himself to his little brother that James actually believed in him. It's amazing to me. It kind of blows my mind that you could grow up with Jesus and, and then see him as a grown man performing the miracles that he was performing, and still not believe that he was who he said he was. It was only after Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead and then came back and showed him specifically that he believed in him. And it revolutionized his life. My whole sermon last week was about once you see this resurrected Jesus, it ought to wreck you. It should mess you up. You should never just come to church, say a prayer, and call yourself saved. That is no more saved than going to McDonald's makes you a chicken McNugget. If you're going to be saved, it's because you have seen this resurrected Jesus. You have asked him for forgiveness because he did what you couldn't do, which was pay for your sins. And then it has so changed your life that you have turned around and made a new decision. This is what being saved is all about. So moving forward in James chapter 1 this morning, I'm not going to ask you to stand because I'm going to be breaking these scriptures down uh, the entire morning. James chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's as far as we made to last week. Here's where we're going to start this week. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad, greetings. Okay? So what he's talking about is who he's sending the letter to and who's going to be receiving it. Who is writing it and who's receiving it. Anytime there is communication, you need those two facts. You need to know who the writer is. You need to know who the receiver is. And he writes to Jewish Christians, and look at the word that he uses, that are scattered. Now why were they scattered? Well, I'm glad you asked. Now, you're going to have to pretend with me for a minute because uh, this is going to sound crazy, I know. But even it's going to be hard for you to even hypothetically uh, come to grips with this. But they lived in a day when the government was hostile. I know, I know. It's, it's hard for you to understand something like that. But the government was hostile, especially against believers. And so, as crazy as it sounds, they, they scattered, they moved, because uh, I know you can't even consider it, but, but get crazy with me for a moment and think about it. The believers were like, we can't stay here 
and have faith, family, and freedom. So we're going to relocate our family and move around to when we can believe the way we want to believe and have what we want to have as far as fellowship and the government can't tell us otherwise. I know it sounds bizarre, but that's the world they were living in. And it makes sense in James's world because if you're a Jewish Christian around 60 A.D., every day of your life is trouble. Every day of your life you're facing trials because you're under Roman oppression. The Jews are mad at you because you follow Jesus. The Romans don't like you because you're a Jew. You're overtaxed, you're oppressed, and if you step out of line, they'll just throw you in prison forever or they'll kill you. So James is trying to answer a question for us in the next few verses. And the question he's answering is, how does your faith in Jesus affect your everyday trouble? It's not going to create for you a safe space. It's going to bring you into some unsafe places. Look at verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. I'm gonna, I, I, I need that to sink in. Consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. So the first thing he's telling us that is that you need to find joy in your trial. I got one amen. This is not me. This is the brother of Jesus Christ telling us that we need to find joy in trouble. And listen to what he says here. He says, it is an opportunity for great, what's the word? Joy. Joy, okay? Our world is lacking in joy, true or false? Yes, it is a joyless, cheerless world. And he says, count all of it, not some of it, not most of it, but count all of it joy. When troubles come of any kind, if I would have wrote this, you would want to run me out of this church. But I didn't write it, I'm just a messenger. He says, when troubles of any kind, Pastor, you don't know what I'm going through. It doesn't matter because it's any kind. No, no matter what kind of trouble is coming your way, he says, consider it. Count it all joy, not if it comes. The question is not if you face trouble. It's when you face trouble. When your next trial pops up, if you're not currently in one right now, he says, it is, it is an opportunity don't most of you think about that? When you get that text message and your heart jumps up in your throat, and you're like, oh, my God, not again. Don't you look at it and say, oh, this is an opportunity for great joy. <laughs> I mean, is that not how you all handle that? Don't, 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 you look down at your, don't you look down at your phone and say, well, this is an opportunity for me to rejoice. Oh, you don't handle it that way. Well, this, this sermon is good for you then. Trials are going to come up in this world. And the reason it comes up in this world is because this world is broken. Okay? This world is crooked and flawed. And sometimes trials come literally up from the bowels of hell into the culture. And it surrounds you as a believer. It's demonic. It's evil. It's wrong. And it's devastating. 
And the longer this world goes, the worse it's going to get. Aren't you glad you came to church today to hear such an encouraging word? Let me tell you, trouble often presents itself as a test. This is the very simple first point that I want to make this morning. Trouble often presents itself as a test. And a test is something that you take. We talked about this a few weeks ago in our last series. That a test is what you take so that you can get promoted. Now, now what I didn't tell you in the last series is that life is a class that never goes out of session. So you're constantly trying to take and pass your test because if you pass the test, you can graduate to the next level of maturity. Now the good news is, even if you fail your test, does your God let you retake the test? Yes, He does. So thanks be unto God for that. Trouble is not only a test, it is also, and you need to get this in your spirit, a source of your pain. The reason that trouble hurts so bad and the reason that James has to teach us to consider it joy, to think about it in a new way, is because the first thing that happens when you go through trouble, tests, and trials is that pain comes from somewhere. It either hurts your bank account or it hurts your heart or it hurts your thoughts or it hurts relationships. It hurts you. It causes you some kind of pain. And nothing reveals your level of faith like pain. Let me stop right there and preach for a minute. Because we're Pentecostal and we love to shout and we love to dance and we love to speak in, in, like a turkey and run around the altar and square dance with folks at the altar. But that doesn't test your faith. Because what I have discovered is that most folks like to get their shout on while they're getting their shine on. In other words, they are promoting God because they got the promotion. They got healed. They got a blessing. The windows of heaven opened up and they poured it out and they got under the spout where the glory was coming out. But what is more difficult than that is to do that same Pentecostal jig right after you left the oncologist's office or right after you got the pink slip or right after they packed their bags and walked out the door and said, I don't love you anymore and I'm not coming back. That's when your real faith gets tested. Somebody say amen if you know I'm preaching right. So the word James uses here to describe trouble is he, he tells us troubles that happen to us are from the outside. Now, later in this same chapter, verse 12, he's going to talk about inner trials. But today, we're going to discuss outside trials, outward trials that happen to us, not in us. Okay? And one takeaway from this verse is that for the believer, your trouble is your treasure. Notice how quiet it gets all of a sudden. Like, I can get you, man, I can, I can really get you pumping and jumping to make the Lord feel something. And then I tell you something like that, and you're like, oh. It just takes the whole air out of the room. Listen, it doesn't feel like a treasure when you're going through it, does it? David could look back over his victory over Goliath and say, hallelujah. I don't think he had that same feeling when he was looking at it. After he's on the ground and he's cut his head off and everything is done and over, absolutely, we celebrate. But when you're standing in a valley and a giant is in front of you, it is a lot harder. He had confidence, but I'd say somewhere he was not looking at him thinking, this is my treasure. This is my opportunity for great joy. So, so, so while we're feeling 
the trouble in one form or another. We're seeing it. We're carrying it. And thanks to this invention called the Internet, we get 24-hour trouble coverage. I mean, we're inundated by it constantly. No matter what day, or, uh, hour of the day or night, it can be global trouble, national trouble, regional, local. Oh, and then because of social media and texting, not only do you get to carry the global problems of the world, but all of your loved ones can text you and fill you in on every hangnail in an instant. If their belly's upset, you get to know about it. If they stub their toe, you get to cry about it. Because they're going to fill you in on it immediately. There is no, uh, uh, there, there's no time and distance any longer. And, and so it could be a lot of different people sitting in this room are all suffering different forms of pain. Some of you might be going through financial pain right now. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you're a business owner and you can't find employees, much less good employees. How about... Some of you are sitting in here, and you've got spiritual trouble. You know that God loves you, but you're just not feeling it. You know what the Bible says, but you feel far from God. How about people that are sitting around you, and their trouble is relational? Like there's people that they know and they love, but their relationships are distant and fractured. It's complicated. It's conflicted. And you're in love with them, but somehow it's hard to do life with them. There's a great many of you that have trouble in your emotions right now. You're just anxious. You're tired. You're worn out. How many of you have mental trouble right now? And I'm not talking about that you need medicated. I'm just talking about I have reached my limit of my humanity. It's been a hard two years. It, no, matter, no matter what scale that you were exposed to the world, it has been a tough two years because if it wasn't hard on you, it was taxing on people you loved and cared about. It's been difficult because the world has started ripping each other apart and criticizing each other, and you've been surrounded by this trouble. Whether or not you got involved in it or not, it got in you and on you, and you had to wear it and deal with it and think about it. And sometimes, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, Sometimes I'm just mentally exhausted. I just don't know how much more of that I can take. My humanity has a certain limit. And when I hit that limit switch, either I have to kick into a supernatural spiritual impartation or I'm going to quit. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed by everything. And this is now what we call our American dream. It's why we're seeing record mental health problems. Counseling has went through the roof and mental issues have circulated the globe at an alarming rate. And I'm going to take this opportunity to teach you a method of studying the Bible. Notice in the very next word that he uses, after he mentions the troubles that are headed our ways, he uses the word consider. And this is a very valuable word for our generation. To consider something requires you to slow down long enough to ponder. Instead of post. Listen, this, this, when he tells us this, he says you need to slow down long enough to weigh things. Because your first impulse is probably incorrect. 
when, when you first feel like doing something, it might not be the best. Do, do, let, me, let me explain to you. We have gotten so overwhelmed in this world that we have stopped talking to each other and we've started talking at one another. I got one amen. We no longer have conversations. Conversations have become a verbal game of double dutch. We just hold our lips shut long enough for you to take a breath so we can jump in and prove our point. We're never listening to understand. We're listening to respond. And we talk over top of one another and at one another and all we want to do is become argumentative at everybody that don't see things our way. I'm not ancient of days, but I'm old enough to remember a time when people could have civil discourse and not agree on things. Browns fans, Steeler fans, didn't like each other's teams, but they could be civil. Republicans and Democrats could be civil. Live beside each other on the same block and not be trying to burn each other's house down with them in the bed. And something has twisted and, and, and moved, and we're no longer able to talk. And, and this is what James is telling us. He's saying when trouble comes, and it's going to come, it's heading your way. If you're not in it now, buckle up, buttercup, it's coming. He says when trouble comes your way, consider. Stop for a minute. Take a breath. Pray. Hey, there's a novel idea for you as a believer to pray about something before you respond to it. And, and, and so the first thing a believer should do when they are drawn into unsafe spaces where trouble is, is to consider. In other words, Christians are supposed to think about trouble different than the world does. When you face trouble, consider. Why? Because your perspective is different. You can't take your cues from the world. They get ticked off over everything. Every news headline makes them mad. Every social media post gets them upset. But those people don't respond like kingdom people are supposed to respond. Because our minds aren't supposed to be tied to the things that their minds are tied to. They get caught up in information that is limited to what you can see. And the information comes, uh, comes at them at a breakneck speed. But they only deal with conspiracy theories and what they can see happening and what they can feel happening and inflation and, 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 and gas prices and, and this person did and, and votes and, and vaccines and, and, and viruses. And that, that's all you can see. But see, us believers, we're not supposed to deal with everything you see because we operate in the unseen. We operate with a supernatural Jesus Christ who is risen from the dead. And this is what James is talking about. He said, my brother died and rose from the dead. And that same spirit that got him up out of the tomb is alive in the heart of the believer. So you don't have to react to the world like they react because you have something they don't have. Look at your neighbor and say, you might be special. Just go ahead. You might be. I want you to look at a picture. I want you to look at a picture. I grew up I grew up literally on the train tracks. When they talk about the wrong side of the tracks, I don't know if I was on the wrong side, but I was literally right beside of them. We would sleep in a tent in the summertime. Us, us boys, would, mom would let us camp out in the yard, which just meant we stayed up all night getting in trouble. And we had a tent to be a cover. And 
if we did lay down about 3 o'clock in the morning, that train would come by, and we were so close to shake, the train would literally rattle ourselves across the floor of that tent because we were so close to the train. So my whole life, I heard that life is a series of ups and downs, good times, bad times. And basically what you were learning was if I hold on through the good times, bad times are coming. But also if I hold on through the bad times, good times are right around the bend. But I've lived enough days to find out that's not true. Life is more like train tracks. Bad and good times travel simultaneously through every minute of my life, and I can touch both of them from where I am. And I have to determine which track I'm going to travel through life on. I'm going to have to determine which track I'm going to travel through this trial on because every single day I live and breathe has an opportunity for great things to happen or to be devastated. And I can touch both sides from where I am right now. I can be depressed right now, or I can shout hallelujah right now. And I'm, I'm the same person facing the same exact thing. I have the same trial sitting in front of me, and it all depends on which side of the track I decide to travel on. So, so this, this, is, this is what James is talking about. This is our reality, okay? So how are we going to find joy in our trials? Because a cheerless Christianity is bad advertisement for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need to learn how to find some joy when the world is flipped on its ear. And he says, this is your opportunity for joy. Almost sounds like a game show. Well, let's welcome in the Smith family. It's our opportunity for joy tonight. And so, so here's the problem. If it's an opportunity for joy and life is a pair of train tracks, it's also an opportunity for you to become a hermit and a recluse and depressed and tormented and have your life feel like it's turned upside down. Because while it's an opportunity for good, it's also an opportunity for the worst thing you've ever went through. So he's not saying, let, let me get this, let, let me put something out there to you because I don't want you to feel like I'm, I'm being hard on you. James is not saying that when you face trials, you have to fake being happy. That you can't ever be sad. I think sometimes we, actually, we accidentally project this idea that strong Christians never get weak or sad or that we never struggle. Like it's our responsibility to get it together so we don't make God look bad. He's not saying that when you face trouble that you, you're supposed to live in denial. He's not even saying, look, you're a Christian, get over it. It's important that you hear me say this. It is okay for you to feel your feelings. I'm going to say it again. It's okay for you to feel your feelings. It's not okay for you to let your feelings control your life. The danger is not because you feel oppressed or you feel tormented or you feel injured or you feel hurt. What's dangerous is when your feelings make your decisions for you. There's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentation, written by a guy we call the Weeping Prophet. Can you imagine if I got up here to preach on Sunday and I couldn't even preach because all I could do was cry? You, you would want to call a specialist. You want to put one of them white jackets on me, put me in a rubber room. But, but, but Jeremiah just felt, as a matter of fact, 
Jesus is called in the Bible a man of sorrows. So it's okay for you to feel your feelings. Some people deny reality because they think they're making Jesus look better. So when they come to church, you're like, how are you doing? And they're like, great! Couldn't be better. And you're like, what planet are you from? Are you you're not from around here? Like, you haven't bought gas lately? <laughs> like, you don't... Hey, <laughs> listen, some people come along and... Hey, man, I, 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 I appreciate you being in my life. Is there anything I can help you pray for? No! God is so good to me, I don't have any prayer requests. You're like, we should drug test them. They're not well. Because some of us act like we have to push all of our problems down to make Jesus look better. But the listen... The awareness, you, may, you becoming aware of your problems is not anti-God. As a matter of fact, it is simply an opportunity, what James says, for you to become more aware that the presence of God in your life is a greater reality than the trouble that's in your life. Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy of the Lord is your, so your body needs sleep and food and water. Your soul needs joy. And when your body don't get enough sleep, water, and food, it gets weak. And some of you don't have any joy and you're wondering why your soul is so weak, see? And listen, this is why the world is the way it is in 2022. Because people are experiencing epidemic levels of poor health. They're self-medicating. They're self-destructing. They're raging. They can't sleep at night. They're traumatized. Why? Because your soul needs nourishment. Your soul needs joy. So what, what James is saying is it's okay to feel, but it's not okay to let your feelings control you. Let's jump back into the Scripture, verse 3. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Perfect and complete, needing nothing. Perfect and complete, needing nothing. That's the fellow you married. He's perfect and complete, needing nothing. I'm glad to get one amen. My wife didn't say nothing, but... I Listen, this is a great verse because here's what it says. It says you have the potential to be perfect and complete, but right now you're missing something. Look at your neighbor. No, don't look at your neighbor right now. <laughs> you're missing something. <laughs> Everything that you have in front of you is an opportunity for joy, and when the joy is found, it is a fully developed, perfect and complete, needing nothing individual that comes out of the process. So we are all spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physical incomplete and imperfect. So what God is trying to do is he is trying to cause you to become the kind of person that can love the Lord with all your heart, all your might, and with all your strength. So God is forming you. Your ability to survive trouble is tied to your ability to understand the purpose. Hmm. So we all have trouble. But we all don't have the same trouble. 
let, let, me, let me clear something up for you because to you in your life, your trouble is the world's biggest trouble. And it took me a long time to realize that even though I'm going through trouble, that there's people with worse problems than I have. Because we get so self-centered. Have you ever been to an ER? Not a lot of polite people there, are they? Oh, no, you go first. You know, you're sitting there with a bandage on your arm. You're in pain. You've been moaning for three hours waiting on them. And they're like, oh, no, by all means, you go first. No, you're up there going, hey, I was here before them. You took that other person back and I was... Not a, lot of, not a lot of niceties at the ER. Why? Because you're all hurting. You're all sick. You're all wounded. You're all, you're all going through something. And it's, at that mo- moment in time, it's the most important thing in the whole wide world. There's nothing more important than the pain that you are enduring. So you want to let everybody know, this ain't cool for you to just dismiss what I'm going through. Well, guess what? Every person under the sound of my voice and all around the globe today is going through something. All of our troubles are not the same, though. See, some of you are enduring uh, a hard-headed child. Some of you are enduring chemo. They're both trouble, but they're not the same. Some of you are enduring in-laws that won't keep their nose out of your business. Some of you lost your parents to COVID. Both trouble, not the same. See, you're going to go through some stuff and have to endure some stuff And some of you might have to endure a hangnail, and somebody else might have to endure an amputation. Both trouble, not the same. We don't all have the same trouble, but we all have the same solution. See, our troubles are different, but our help is the same. So, so, so nothing makes you understand who you are and where your help comes from like trouble and suffering. And suffering is relative, okay? So what is suffering? Suffering is the pain that you go through when you lose something you was convinced you couldn't live without. Uh, Why does God let you go through suffering? Why does God let trials and temptations and problems come and cause you suffering? Because it makes you face the reality that the thing you thought you couldn't lose and keep on living wasn't as important as the thing that has kept you living all this time. You thought for sure that if they ever left you, your heart would be broken to a million pieces and you'd never be able to function. And, oh, God, what am I going to do? I can't take it anymore. Life ain't worth living if they ain't with me. And God will sometimes remove them out of your life to say, hey, look, you're still alive and I'm still here and I am all you needed in the first. See, he's trying to get you to reframe your life and find out what exactly really is important. Okay, so everybody's frustrated, and as a believer, you're going to have to learn how to see the value in suffering, because God will start stripping away stuff that you are convinced you have to have, okay? Now, there are some characters in this room. There's some characters in here, and the characters I'm going to talk about specifically are the ones that have a hard time passing heaven's tests. Are you ready? Now, hear me. I'm going to walk through them briefly, and if this is you, don't raise your hand. And if you recognize somebody else, don't point at them and say, hey, are you listening? Okay, but we're going to go through a few people here that have a hard time with passing heaven's test. Number one, there's some of you in here that are the ignore it and it'll go away people. I don't do conflict. I don't do problems. 
I internalize. I avoid. If something's going wrong, we're just going to pray and we're going to believe God. And you get real spiritual. Oh, I'm just trusting in the Lord to take care of it. No. Listen, you can't just skip class and say that you passed the test. That's not the way this works. There are certain things in life you're just going to have to man up or lady up and take care of. Then there's some people in here that are Bob the Builder. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. So some of you that whatever the problem is, you think we're going to fix it. We're going to make it better, and I'm going to get involved, and I'm going to find out all the information, and I'm going to find out what has to be done, and I'm smart, and I've read some books, and I took psychology in college, and I'm going to fix it all, and you people are annoying. Because true or false, there's some things in life you can't fix, especially when it comes to somebody else and the actions that they are doing. And you cannot straighten someone else out. Then there's the group of people that have a hard time with heaven's test because they're worry warts. Oh, it's been a rough couple of years for you folks, hasn't it? Because every day there's something else for you to get bent out of shape about. Ah, politics. Ah, COVID. Ah, vaccine. Ah, election. And all of a sudden, tick, 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 boom. And you just blow up all over everybody. And I know that you're going through it because I hear from some of you. And you'll send it to me and say, hey, did you read this? And I'll be like, no. Because I was feeling good until you sent me this. I don't want to be like you. Freaking out is not a fruit of the Spirit. I, 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 don't want, I don't want to read this mess and have it all in my head. You are the most dangerous prophet in your life. You constantly prophesy doom and gloom over yourself. Oh, it's going to be terrible. I don't know what we're going to do if gas keeps going up. Well, I don't know. Buy a horse. I got two bicycles. Hannah used to ride a hoverboard. I don't know what you want. Hey, why, why are you constantly just stressing out over things that you can't control? What I'm saying is, not that you ignore life, but you realize as a believer that somebody else is in control of this anyway. And what we have on the other side is greater than all the troubles that we're going through right now. And then there's some people in this room that are a black hole. You're where joy goes to die. Let me, let me explain. Let me explain. You're the kind of person that gets up. And in the morning, you just grit your teeth and you brush it with sandpaper. Bite a raw onion. And you say, bless God, I'm just going to go to work. And I'm going to absorb all the bad stuff. And I'm just going to get stuff done. And you're cheerless. And if you smiled, your face might break. And you look like you were baptized upside down in pickle juice. But you're like, I'm going to get it done, and I'm going to put my nose down, and I'm just going to power through because I'm tough and I'm strong. And how do I know this? Because I know a guy. Nobody wants to be around you. Not because you don't work hard, not because you're not tough, but because you're cheerless. And you don't have joy. And you're trying to power through things that God doesn't intend for you to carry. So they don't have cheer and they don't have joy. And as a result, people don't like to be around them. 
You're not fun to do life with. You're just a duty-bound person without any cheer. I know. Because I've been around one for 48 years. And then there's the attorney. The attorney never takes responsibility for their, what they've done wrong. They're always the victim. And anytime conflict comes their way, there's this little lawyer that stands up in the courtroom of their heart. And they start making arguments. Not my fault. They did this to me. If I, the only reason I'm like this is because they... Oh, y'all quiet in this mortuary. I don't say... You, you, nobody in this room knows anybody like that. Uh, the only reason I treat you that way is because you did... And listen, some of y'all look guilty. Some of y'all... Some of y'all look at me like he's picking on me. No, no, that's, that's called Holy Spirit. I just get up here and say stuff. Holy Spirit does the conviction. <laughs> I just get up here and say stuff, and I let him do the work. So, so if this hits home to you, you're welcome. And, and then there's the Eeyores. Oh, my. I'm going to martyr myself. Oh, I'm just going to suffer for all my troubles. If I'd have been a better mother, my children would be better children. If I was a better husband, my wife wouldn't have left me. I, I'm just going to suffer for my church because my church needs somebody to die for it. Because Jesus' death wasn't enough. Every day that I live and breathe that you have blessed me with, oh God, I promise to make it terrible. And have you ever thought maybe Jesus is looking down saying, hey, I already did that. I already died for you. I don't need you to die for me. I need you to live for me so that those that don't know me will want me. See, God's not asking you to die for him. He already did that. And then we got the YOLO. Listen, I couldn't have preached about the YOLO when I was a young pastor, but I'm old and been around a while now, and I've seen the YOLO come and go. Here's, here's what the YOLO does. They are tore up from the floor up about Jesus for about 27 seconds. I mean, they are dancing in the aisle. They will come to every service. I could call a special service where we're just going to scrub Jesus' toilets, and they would be here with a mask on and gloves and say, oh, Jesus is going to let me scrub his toilets. I mean, they want to be involved in everything, but the rapture better happen quick because they burn up real fast. Because what happens is, and you can go over to Mark chapter 4 and read about the four seeds, and you'll find out an example of these people. What happens is, the first time they run into hard times and and trouble, they say, oh, you know what? I've earned a little me time. I was going to go to Promise of Victory this morning, but I went to the club last night because I've been working so hard, I deserved a little. My wife hasn't been very nice to me, so I had an affair, and it's her fault because I deserve to be happy. Hello? God didn't answer my prayer, so I'm going to take a little break from church. Because I needed him to give me that other job, and, and he didn't do it. So I'm going to take a little break from church. And can I tell you that it's hard to learn how to handle trouble when you're going through it? 
It is easy for your neighbor to look at your trouble and tell you, engage, and tell you why you should be handling your trouble a certain way. But it is hard to handle it when it's in your lap. And to finish my sermon this morning, I'm going to go back to the Old Testament. And I'm going to use an Old Testament story to show you exactly what I mean. We're going to go to Haggai chapter 2, if you, if you have a Bible. Haggai chapter 2. Let me just give you a backdrop, and I, I, I know I've been up here for 40 minutes already, so let me, let me just give this to you uh, in a condensed version. God's people has been taken into slavery, and they've been gone for 70 years. The Babylonians had captured them and taken them slaves. On the way out of Israel, out of the way, on the way out of Jerusalem, they burned everything. They tore the temple down. They destroyed their houses. There was nothing left in Jerusalem. It was a barren wasteland. For 70 years, they have lived in Babylon. Now, they have come back, and they are expected to rebuild Jerusalem. The walls have been torn down. The houses are gone. The temple is gone. And here God asked them in Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. God asked them a question. Does anyone remember this house, this temple, the way it used to look? Stick with me. Just I, I, I need you to grasp this. He said, does anybody remember what this house used to look like? The splendor. And then he says, because listen, they have come back, they've been back for 16 years. And all they've gotten done in rebuilding Jerusalem is they have laid the foundation of the new temple. That's it. In 16 years, all they have done is poured a new foundation. And God asked the question, how many of you remember this house in its former splendor. And then he says, and how does it look to you now? Remember what it used to look like. And what's it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. See, when you lose stuff, if you're not careful, it'll cause you to think less of what you have left. I'm preaching. Listen, I'm, I'm not going into a whole other sermon. You're not going to sit through another 40 minutes. If you'll stay with me, listen. When you lose something that you used to have, but you remember what it used to look like, it will cause you to despise what you still have left in your hands. The marriage you used to... The relationship you used to have with your kid, the, the job you used to have, it, when you start remembering that in its splendor and you look at what you got now and it doesn't compare... It will cause you to despise what you have left. Look at verse 5. And God comes right in and says, My spirit remains among you. Can I just stop right there and tell you that if you get that, that's enough? If His spirit will stay with you, that's all you need? No matter what you, my God in heaven, no matter what you have lost, if you have still got the Spirit of God in you, that's all you need. You can rebuild whatever has been lost as long as you haven't lost the Lord. They can leave you and never come back, but if you hold on to Jesus, friend, you've got everything that you would ever need. And he says, just as I promised when you came out of Egypt, so don't be afraid. 
For this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. In just a little while, I will again shake the heavens and the earth, the oceans and the dry land. I will shake the nations, and the treasures of all the nations will be brought to this temple. I will fill this place with my glory. Says the Lord of heaven's armies, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of this heaven's army. The future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory, says the Lord of heaven's army. And in this place, where? This place, where? This place. In other words, where you feel like you lost too much, he says, right there. Where you feel like it's never going to be the same, right there. Where you have been lamenting all the stuff that's broke and, and, and disgusting, and, and you're mourning what used to be, he says, right there, I will fill this place with myself. Uh-huh. And this is the place I will bring peace. I, the Lord of heaven's army, has spoken. Now, it's not going to have, it's not going to be the same. It's not going to have as much gold as Solomon's palace had. Solomon's temple had gold everywhere. And it's not going to be the same. Look at your neighbor and say, it's going to be different. It's going to be different. But he says, I'm going to fill it with my glory. So it won't have as much gold, but it's going to have more glory. My God. So, 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 in other words, church, you can lose some stuff that's never coming back, but it won't stop the glory from coming. My God. So God sends Haggai to ask this question. He says, who of you remembers? In other words, who can remember what it used to be? Because those are the people that's going to be focusing on what they lost and overlooking what they have left. The rest of my sermon is going to focus around that thought. He said, speak to the remnant. There's 60,000 Jews that came back. When they left, they were over 3 million. It's easy for you to look at 3 million and say, where's all God's people? Where's Solomon's temple? I remember when things used to be so great. But he says, talk to the people who's there. See, you're misunderstanding what he's saying. He says, work with what you got. Take advantage of what you have left. Because sometimes you're missing the things that God is bringing into your life because of the stuff that God removed out of your life. And you are crying over the stuff that's gone and you're missing what God has replaced it with. And then he asked another question in verse 3. He says, who of you is left that saw the house in its former glory? And then he asked this rhetorical question, how's it look now? It must look like nothing. And there are a few of these returning exiles who saw Solomon's temple. Okay? They remember Solomon's temple. Can I tell you something? The future and the past both have something in common. They're both fantasy. You idolize the future. You know the future you? The future you that's 20 pounds lighter and 20 million richer? You idolize that. But you... You lie about the past. Because the past in your mind is always worse or better. You exaggerate it than it really was. Listen, 
you ever, you ever met somebody that everything in the past was better? All the cars was better in my day. And the sports players were better in my day. And we had the best hamburgers you ever put in your mouth in my day. And I listen to these people talk, and I'm becoming one of them people. And I'm thinking, that can't be accurate. Everything couldn't be better back then than it is now. It's theoretically impossible that every single thing was better in my day. Because what we do is we exaggerate our past and we make it better or worse than it really was. Oh, you mean there was no problems back in your day, huh? Back in the old days when everything was perfect. Yeah, you mean when they used to put leeches on folks to get rid of blood diseases back then? Back when I used to have to be potty trained in an outside toilet back then, that was great. We didn't have three rooms and a, and a bath. We had three rooms and a path. Back then, everything was perfect. Oh, our roads never got potholes back in the day. Really? Because I remember my dad distinctly complaining about potholes when I was this big. But we remember things the way we want to remember them so that we don't have to face the reality that feels like we lost something. So the future is imaginary, but so is the past that we create for ourselves. Listen, I used to read these self-help books before the pandemic. I used to read all these self-help books, and they used to say things like, you need a five-year plan. After 2020, I need like a five-minute plan. I ain't trying to do five. Are you kidding me? I need like a 10-second plan so I don't freak out driving home from church. Five years. <laughs> Things change so fast these days. I'm not thinking five years down the road. And in the Bible, in the Bible, we, you, you will find stories in the same books happening at the same time that gives you a little bit of insight. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the same story, but different precepts. Uh, David, his story is in First and Second Samuel, but you'll find out how he was feeling by reading Psalms. So there is a book called Ezra in your Old Testament. And we're going to go there now. And Ezra is going to tell us why Haggai needed to come along and give these people encouragement. Okay? These people are standing there looking at this foundation. It's not as big as Solomon's temple. It's not going to have as much gold as Solomon's temple. And some of them remember what the temple used to look like. Some of them remember how glorious the old temple was. And Ezra, chapter 3. I don't hear y'all turning in y'all's Bibles. Y'all got it on electronic. See, right now, if I was one of them old preachers, I'd start, yeah, church was better when everybody brought a Bible. If I was one of them old codgers, I'd be, you know what? We were more holy when we all had a Bible. Really? Because I remember people, and they didn't read them back then either. I remember people bringing these great big three-pound Bibles into church every Sunday, and the only time they ever cracked them open was when I said, open your Bibles. So I'm not necessarily sure that back in the day it was any better than what it is right now. Ezra chapter 3, look what it says. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, this is the same story. Two different books, but the same story is happening in the same, lo in the same place. They laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. Gary, you want to come up here? Gary's going to help me preach the rest of this message. And the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. They stood, the priests stood with trumpets. And the Levites, pay attention, Pay attention, the Levites, sons of Asaph with cymbals, to praise the Lord, to praise the Lord, to praise the Lord, 
according to the directions of King David. And they sang, praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, saying, For he is good, his favor is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout. Now we're going to act out this verse. Are you ready? Because I'm going to be King David. And I'm going to give you instructions. And when I give you the instructions, we're going to have a trumpet blast. And we're going to shout with a great shout. Are you ready? They did it according to the direction of King David. So I'm going to be King David this morning. And they are about to dedicate the new temple. You have to understand, 70 years. 70. 70 years they have had no temple. They've had no worship of their God in their house 70 years almost an entire generation has died and not made it back to see this and they have the foundation laid out and they're about to dedicate this thing and David says man we're about to throw a Pentecostal party we're about to have some church up in here and he says he had a trumpet blast go ahead and blast that trumpet and the people gave a great shout That's a medium shout. They gave a great shout. That's a pretty good shout. Thank you. And here we are. Wait a minute. Don't run off. We need need that in a minute. And here they are. Here they are. Verse 12. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept when they saw the foundation. But here's the problem, verse 13. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. Same church. Same church service. We got shouting. We got trumpet blasts. And over here we've got people crying over what used to be. Crying over what is never coming back. Wasting the moment of celebrating their God because they're mourning something they can never retrieve. Look who it was. It was the Levites, the heads of the house, and the priests. It was the ones who, if anybody was going to get excited about this new temple, it should have been them. But they're the ones crying. And here, verse 13 says this. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. In other words, it just sounded like noise. And anybody looking at the church, can't tell the difference between the ones celebrating Jesus and the ones weeping over what will never be again. Some people can't get past the past and celebrate what God is doing in their life right now because the troubles and the trials has sucked victory out of them. And Jesus didn't die to give you a used-to-be victory. He died to make you victorious and have life more abundantly in the here and now. And when the world hears the church, they hear this convoluted mess. And it just sounds like noise. Because some people are rejoicing. Man, we're going to get a temple again. Look at this. Ain't God good? He has started something. And the ones that can't get excited over what God has started are crying over what 
used to be. And the Bible says that when they started shouting, some of them let disappointment drown out their faith. You got married full of hope, and disappointment just sucks that out of you. You joined the church full of hope, and you found out the church ain't perfect, neither's pastor, and the people you go to church with jacked up, messed up. And it, I remember when we used to shout in the church. You know what? I used to be in them shouting churches too. And I've watched them same shouting saints. The only time that they ever acted civil was in that room. The rest of the time they just tore people apart. What used to be shouldn't stop your celebration from what is. I guess compared to some people, I don't have much at all in this world. But if you go to Africa, go to some slums in China, I'm rich. I think about my dad who had to drop out of school in seventh grade to work the family farm. What I've been able to provide for my kids as opposed to what he provided for me. It's all about perspective. It's how you see it. It's how you frame it. So I'm as a, I, as a pastor, I'm constantly wanting people touched. I got a whole section. I got a whole section right here. Ain't got nobody in it. And if all I focus on is right there, I'm going to be depressed all week long because I got a whole section without any people sitting in it. But if I reframe myself and say I got as many people on this stage as I had in the church when I started. Or how about this? If I reframe it, that there was a time for nine weeks when the church was shut down. We weren't sure if we was ever getting back in the building together. And now here we are and we're able to hug each other. We ain't got to wear no masks anymore and we ain't got to stay six feet apart. And we ain't got to baptize people in a fresh pool of water every time. It's all about perspective. It's all about framing. So here's what I want to do as we get ready to leave here this morning. Because I'm well aware that under the sound of my voice, I've got weeping and rejoicing. I've got celebrators and people who are discouraged. In this room, looking at the... Listen, this wasn't two different temples. It was one foundation. And they were all seeing it differently. I want to help reframe your, your perspective this morning before you leave. Because there's people in this room that's praising God for what you take for granted. So for 16 years, the foundation has sat there without any advancement. And the word came to Haggai and says... What God did in the past won't be as good as what he's going to do in the future. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, this morning to stand to your feet.
Yeah, one more time. There's a little line in the Bible that will change your life forever. If you'll receive it. I find it about eight times in my Bible. Rejoice in the Lord. That's why, that's why the world doesn't have any joy today. Because they don't have the Lord. But you and I, we're supposed to have a different perspective. We rejoice in the Lord. We've got a reason to shout when it don't look like we got a reason to shout. Because I promise you one thing, you could lose the house. And it don't change the fact that that tomb is empty. You, you can get laid off from work, and Jesus is still risen from the dead. It's all about perspective. You, you can go through the worst trial of your life. You can leave the oncologist's office and be facing three months of hard chemotherapy. And I'm not diminishing your pain, and I'm not telling you that you shouldn't hurt, but I promise you, Jesus is still on His throne. It's all about perspective. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. So here's my assignment for you this week. I want you to leave this church. I want you to leave for work in the morning. I want you to, 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 to go to the Walmart. I, I, wherever it is you go, I want you to assume that wherever you go, there's joy there that you need to find. Rejoice in the Lord. James said, consider it an opportunity to find joy. So I want you to assume, oh my God, I'm going to heal somebody's marriage. I'm going to give you a 10-second drive-by marriage counseling right now. Consider your marriage has joy in it and find it. Stop considering. Reframe your thinking because you've been thinking way too long that there's nothing good here. Oh, it's quiet in here. That's like saying, sick him to a coon dog. You've been considering far too long. This marriage is dead. There's nothing here. No, assume that there's joy and find it. Assume that there's joy where you work. Assume that there's joy in reading your Bible, in praying. Assume that there's joy in the trouble that you're going through and find it. Because there's people in this room this morning that are going through stuff that you would lose sleep over. And they're doing it with a smile on their face. Because apparently somewhere along the way, they heard the trumpet blast. And they decided that when the trumpet goes off, they're going to give a great shout of joy. Gary, help us out. And they gave a great shout of joy. That's an all right shout of joy, but I want to hear a great shout of joy. Can you do it one more time with fervor? Hallelujah! Find joy. Find it. Assume it's there. Consider what you're going through is not the end of you and find joy I love your promise of victory and I want to see you prosper 
This book's going to help us get there. Are you excited about the rest of James? Amen. There's a lot of things that you can consider, and most of them in 2022 aren't going to feed your soul. So consider it joy that you have an opportunity. Hey, there's stuff you went through in the past that you didn't think you'd make it through, and you're still here. God bless you this morning. Promise of victory. We love and appreciate you.